This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Wisconsin has, for years, been ranked as one of the worst states in the nation for racial disparities, particularly for its black residents. That fact was thrust into the spotlight after police in Kenosha fired seven shots into Jacob Blake's back. Once again, an atrocity has prompted people to want to act, but agreeing on how is the hard part. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin. Shortly after Blake was shot, Governor Tony Evers urged lawmakers to pass a set of policing reform bills. The Republican majority in the Assembly countered with plans to form a task force aimed at addressing racial disparities. Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke, a white Republican, and Representative Sheila Stubbs, a black Democrat, are leading the effort together. First of all, for making some time to talk, um, I hope our sound quality is okay. We're masked up. We're social distancing. We're doing everything we're supposed to do. Um, so I guess let's just jump in. What do you guys see as the mission for this task force? Sure, you want to take that? Sure. So I really, first and foremost, thank you for giving us this really important opportunity. I really see the mission of this task force being able to address the inequities that exist uh, in lives of people, especially African-Americans across the state of Wisconsin, also people of color, so Native American, Latinos, Na- um, African-Americans, Hmong um, community, and being able to look at every area of their life, such as education, criminal justice, the environment, poverty, health care, just from the beginning of life to the end of life and everything in between is where I really think that we'll begin to address the inequities. We're not going to solve everything, but we're definitely going to take a next direction or the next step into addressing it. Yeah, and that's that's really the goal. And Representative Stubbs said it well. You know, one of the things that we've really lacked here in the Capitol, especially uh, over the course of the last few years, um, is the ability to work together on big issues of the day, starting from the beginning and working all the way through them to the end. And blame, I'm sure, lies on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, and, and why this is happening. We see it nationally far too often, too. Um, but what I appreciate about Representative Stubbs is her willingness to set all that aside, all the partisanship, all the, uh, you know, the battles we've had over the last couple of years, and just work on solutions cooperatively. And I think the most important thing is involving communities of color throughout the state in this conversation to make sure that uh, we have buy-in in what we ultimately do because we're going to have to have consensus on uh, anything that we're going to eventually pass, whether that's uh, relating to police reforms or healthcare or education. It's all going to have to be a cooperative effort. Sure. So what do you see as the advantages of approaching this with a task force instead of just introducing bills kind of on their own? Or um, I guess why is this the, the way that you think it's right to approach it this way? Well, again, for me, and I, I know Representative Stubbs uh, has been clear in the in the past about how she wished we would, had moved forward with the bills that were mm-hmm. introduced in June, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I understand that, that sentiment. I, I think the, the most important thing that we can do as a body is help build support, capture the momentum that's been uh, started over the course of the last few months, uh, but build support through education and meetings and involvement of both Republicans and Democrats, uh, people from uh, communities of color as, as, long as, as well as experts in the particular fields uh, to really highlight these issues, why there's a problem and what the solutions are. And I, I like to say, you know, I'm really grateful that um, Speaker Boss uh, really focused on creating this task force um, to address uh, the inequities that exist across the state of Wisconsin. And I'm really honored that um, Representative Majority Leader Steineke really feels that I'm the right partner uh, to have this conversation because he's absolutely right. First and foremost, we have to check our politics at the door. That's not getting us to where we need to be. But I really, really believe that this task force will, will be successful because we're inviting the right people to engage in the conversations that will be experts, that can bring us national best practices, that can actually move forward meaningful conversations and meaningful bills that we all can give and take, right? So a, a part of this is the negotiation, the compromising, but we want to make sure that we're moving this process along with other people, community. You know, throughout this process with Black Lives Matter movement, and we all know, you know, the unfortunate situation with George Floyd being killed and Tony Robinson killed right here in Madison. I've seen these movements. I've been a witness there. And they keep saying, listen to us. And I think that's where we are. Uh, this is about listening to those that are out in the community that's marching, that's talking. It's having, you know, having people who oftentimes feel that their voices have not been included or have not been engaged, been a part of the task force in some capacity with engagement, but listening to some of the recommendations that are being said that I hear every day, which is action. What I really hear protesters saying and what I've heard elected officials say in the places, what is it that we've asked people to come and meet with us on committee, these recommendations? Have we implemented it? If not, why not? How do we get things more actionary? So that means working with your colleagues. I'm honored to say I came to the table to work with my colleagues because in order to move forward in the state of Wisconsin, we have to do it collectively. And this is the, the next step to do that. Hey, Representative Stubbs, you mentioned checking politics at the door. Um, I know you've gotten some criticism from probably mostly Democrats or, or people who have been protesting for participating in this in the first place. How have you responded to that? You know, I talked to my leadership and said this was important for me as an African-American woman, as an elected official, someone who has experience, um, someone who's been a victim of racial profiling. I think I have the necessity tools to have these engaging conversations. I've done the work. I've done so much work at the, the county side. I consider myself a champion in these conversations. If I didn't feel that I was equipped uh, with the right knowledge, I would not waste my time at this table, but I know about racial disparities. And so that is the, the, the framework in which I bring into this table. I've been very clear with the governor's office. This is important for me. You know, this is personal. Um, this is my passion. But knowing that Wisconsin is the worst state to raise a black family, why is that the case? I've been here since age five. I love Wisconsin. And in order to make it feel that most everyone is inclusive, there are areas that we have to work on. And so I'm not going to stand and just tell you how bad it is. I'm going to go to work to change it so we can become a leader at something great 
instead of being the leader at something worse. Well, and that's, again, why I appreciate uh, Representative Stubbs' attitude in this so much is because the easy thing to do is to retreat, especially with an election looming, you know, less than 60 days away, is to retreat in your partisan corners and blame each other for why things aren't happening. Uh, she chose not to do that. She chose to, to work cooperatively to be part of the solution. And I, that's why I have so much confidence in this process. That along with the fact that, you know, we're really focusing this task force membership on people that want to be productive, that understand that nobody's going to get 100% of what they want, but also aren't going to draw hard lines in the sand and not be willing to compromise. One of the things we talk about all the time with uh, prospective members is, you know, there may be an issue where you just can't get to a yes on it, but instead of saying no, figure out, maybe ask the question in a different way of, I might not be able to do it the way you want us to do it, but is there another way we can accomplish the same goal working together? And that's, I think, the most important part of the conversations we're going to have. Something else I'd like to just make a quick comment about is that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback with people saying, thank you. Thank you for having the sense to work with your colleague. We don't want to turn into D.C. where they can't come to a critical decision. Like, we need your voice. And I can say that as an elected official, you know, when I ran for office, people recognize I'm a proven voice. I'm a bold leader. But I'm practical, right? I know how to get things done. I'm given a really unique historical opportunity in the state of Wisconsin to be a, a part of the solution and not just keep talking about how bad it is. And so um, the feedback I've gotten has been positive. I've had people say, you're the right person. Glad you're doing it. We know something's going to be done. And so that helped propel me to say, yeah, I know what I'm doing. This this was the right step for me. It wasn't personal to you know, be a divider, but it was about being able to come to the table and write common sense policy and have the outside voices come into the Capitol and help them say, yeah, this is the next best step for the state of Wisconsin. So I'm honored to do it with Representative Steineke. Did you have any trepidation early on before you knew, you know, where you were going to go with this, getting Democratic support to be, you know, a white man leading a task force on racial disparities before you knew that you had a, a partner on the <laughs> Democratic side? No, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, this is this is one of those issues where um, it, it's it's very difficult. So raising your hand and volunteering for something like this isn't easy, especially as you know, a white guy that lives up in in Kirkana, Wisconsin. Um, it, it, but it provides us an opportunity that I just couldn't pass up where I felt if we were going to make a serious effort that I, I felt like it was important to have somebody in a leadership role in the legislature as part of that to, to show that we are serious about this. Uh, but it provides such an opportunity to show that we can do things differently, that we can bring people together instead of constantly uh, dividing people. And I think that's going to be a critical lesson, uh, hopefully leading into the elections, but then beyond, especially that uh, we can get these things done together. As long as we start from a basis of understanding, we're willing to include people that we don't normally talk to in the conversations on, on what the solutions are. So in terms of just logistics, what's the, the timeline for getting started and you know, what kind of applicants are you seeing so far? What's the, the next steps? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about the timeline. Uh, right now, the um, 
the speaker put out uh, some information asking for nominations or people that are interested to serve to get their information in by uh, the 18th. Uh, obviously, that's approaching quickly. Uh, we've had a, a large volume of people that are interested in serving, so that's great. It also makes our job a little bit more difficult as far as narrowing that down and really making sure that we're picking the right people. But that's why I'm glad that uh, Representative Stubbs and I are doing this together so that we both have ownership in who's on the task force and we're all comfortable with that composition because the last thing we want is, number one, for people to feel like their voices weren't included or worse yet, that it was weighted in one way or another for some kind of partisan advantage. So that's really what we're trying to avoid by doing this together. But we expect those... Uh, interviews and those talks with potential members to continue for at least the next week or so, and then hopefully start making announcements in a week and a half or two weeks on uh, beginning to roll out the membership of the task force. Okay. It's obviously a very broad, vast set of issues that you're going to be looking at, and probably, you know, you don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse before you know who's going to be on the task force, but do you have some initial thoughts of what might be the areas that you, you do focus on? I think criminal justice reform has to be the right topic to start off with in the conversation, given what's what's happened in the state of Wisconsin. And, and you know, just being a little candid uh, with what happened with Jacob Blake. And there are bills that have been introduced in this capital way before I, I became a member um, of the legislature. And it's looking at all of these bills that are out there and examining them, finding out what are the, you know, the likes what are the things that they, there are the challenges? How do we come and understand what works best given the situation? And I think that that's why, to me, it makes sense to move forward on profiling. Also, given what's happened with the unfortunate death of George Floyd, you know, the no chokeholds, and then the Breonna Taylor, the no nut warrants. And so as we're hearing these stories around the country, uh, we have situations right in Madison. We had the death of Tony Robinson, Paul Hannon, Dontre um, Hamilton, and others in the state of Wisconsin killed. And so it's it's a necessary conversation. And I think uh, one of the partners of this task force that is going to be really important is having law enforcement at the table. They're key, key players because it's their manuals. It's you know it's their process. It's their departments, and we're having outsiders come in and look and say what well, we want to tweak, but we need to make sure their voices are there to understand why we're feeling the way we're feeling and what, it, what impacts and implications it's going to have. And I do believe that we're going to be a leader in a lot of the reforms that happen across the United States because I think our, we're going to be watched in the state of Wisconsin. And I think with the right voices at the table, we will get the correct reforms. Yeah, and they, obviously the police reforms are, are a big part of this, but also a big part of it is you know, economic opportunities, uh, disparities in healthcare, uh, all across the board where, where we see uh, opportunities that aren't the same for people of color that they are for others in the mm -hmm. state. Those are, those are areas that we need to look at. And I think we have to have somewhat of a parallel track while we're, while we're doing this. So we have experts in each of these individual field, fields talking about these issues and coming up with solutions and then uh, hopefully coming to the task force as a whole at some point with solutions on how we can move forward. It's going to be a, a large task force. There's right. going to be a lot of members, but that's necessary in order to get everybody's voices at the table and the experts in that particular field uh, of what we're looking at to, to be part of the solution. 
Right, because there's areas like, for example, in Dane County, we were the worst county for poverty across the United States, and that's huge. Uh, we have housing issues. We have, you know, well-being. We have infant mortality rates. We have adult and juvenile delinquency areas, uh, criminal justice system. So, I mean, there's just a wealth of areas. Education is huge across the state, and so in order to begin to address those inequities, you'll need these parallel tracks. So having experts in each of those areas are critical. Also to look at the next uh, best practices, national best practices, looking at other models and say what works best for the state of Wisconsin. Some of the criticisms we've heard is that, oh, you know, this task force is moving slow, even though it's only been a couple of weeks, um, that, you know, you guys aren't doing enough. What we're asking is, is and I'm specifically, I'm not asking people to, to trust me or to have faith in me or this task force. What I'm asking for is some patience as we put together the right makeup and the composition of the task force to make sure all voices are included, that we do have people that know what they're talking about when it comes to these specific areas of disparities. That, I think, is more important than anything else to get that right to begin with. So that's going to take a little time. And then once we do get rolling... Hopefully things will progress uh, fairly rapidly, but we also don't want, don't necessarily want to rush this and not uh, either do things in, in the wrong way or do things that don't really have a big impact. Uh, we want to make sure we get this right. But I, I fully expect that coming into session next year, we'll, we'll have some things that we can pass that we can all be proud of. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess coming into this with the, the things that we know about Wisconsin, that it is ranked among the worst states, if not the worst state for black people in so many ways, I'm sure you can both understand why people are frustrated and, and do want something to happen faster or that they wouldn't trust the process. And I think, you know, just to be honest and candid, because I did this work at the county level, I mean, we've there's always been work to address inequities. So we know data takes time to collect it. And then it takes time to address it. And then it takes time to find the right initiative. It's going to take time. We didn't get here overnight with these disparities. It's going to take time. And I think we have to be so careful how we're addressing it. One of the areas that, you know, um, Representative Steinecke probably knows is I introduced a bill on creating an office of equity and inclusion. That has been one of the infrastructures that we have at the county level, we hire people that are equity specialists that can begin to look at every department, find those equity plans, create them, learn what the retention rate is, or why aren't we doing this, or what's happening. That is something I think at the state level we can eventually move to, that we have to build a framework. And we don't have the framework. We have every department in silos. But if we can put it together in a framework, I think that's the other way we can begin to address inequities and get the data and then find the solutions. And I think this task force will have recommendations that we probably can use to go towards each of those different um, departments. Yeah. At, the, at the end of the day, as Republicans in the legislature, we could pass whatever we wanted, send it to the governor, and hope he signs it. The governor uh, can put out whatever he wants and you know call a special session and ask us to pass it uh, and just you know, we could get stuck in that pit mm -hmm. of <laughs> despair when it comes to politics, mm -hmm. or, you know, we could start this process anew. And I think that's really what, what we're focused on here and, and why I think we both have so much hope in, mm -hmm. in what the results can be. To make this personal, given your identities as a black woman and a white man, do you think that you are viewed differently, treated differently by law enforcement, by people in society in general? 
Well, certainly, like, I had some uh, conversations with some professional athletes here in the state not too long ago, and um, I realized that our, our perspectives on law enforcement are just different from our, because of our personal experiences. I, I think I made the statement that uh, we should all agree that 99.5% of police officers are, are there for the right reasons, doing the right thing, uh, and trying to do their best. And I realized after that conversation that that wasn't necessarily agreed to by everybody. So we just have, we have different perspectives and that's why I think these conversations are so important because when you look at the state of Wisconsin, what is it, 83% white. Um, vast majority of the state geographically is, is white. Um, so we, we as individuals in Wisconsin that are part of the majority have to understand where the uh, struggles come from when it comes to the people of color throughout the state and, and why they have a different perception of, the, of law enforcement than we do. But again, that's why we, anything that we do is going to have to have consensus because we're not going to be able to pass anything through the legislature that law enforcement is vehemently opposed to. And I'm sure Governor Evers isn't going to sign anything that uh, people of color in the state are, are vehemently opposed to. So that's, it's very important that we have this as a concerted effort to bring people together. And, and I appreciate you saying that, Representative Steineke, because I think it's important to understand it's not just a Black issue. It's not just a Black or Latino or Native American or Hmong issue. It's a state of Wisconsin issue. It, so it's getting the colleagues that don't look like me, my white colleagues, to understand it's also their issue. And in urban areas, you know, that's where you find the diversity, but some parts of Wisconsin, that might not be an issue there. But I need to address it and educate them that it is an issue across the state. So it's not just my personal issue. I need you to understand. I need you to be my co-conspirator on this. I need to be an ally to understand it's also your issue. I personally have been a great friend uh, with law enforcement in my neighborhood, being a you know, president of Bridge Lake Point Neighborhood Association, being a supporter of neighborhood police officers. Uh, chief Noble Ray, who was a former chief of Madison Police Department, African-American, um, was a Beat Street officer in Lake Point, which is a high-risk neighborhood, which is where I live. But I've always been a partner, not until I had my profile incident, that I have a different experience with law enforcement. But it was, who do you respect when you still don't respect if I've given you three levels of validation? And it's building the trust. And I think that's where we have to get back to is building the trust. At the end of the day, I want to go home. If I get stopped by law enforcement, I want to go home. I'm sure they want to go home. So we have to figure out what does it take for both of us to go home, right? And, or if I'm driving away, I don't want to feel like if you pull me over, I'm not going to make it home. I need to make that one phone call. Who's listening? I got to hope that there's someone standing around with a camera. You know, it's all these things that now have to go into your mind. And I can only speak for myself that when I have the scenario with the law enforcement officer, all I could think about is I want to go home. I want to take my eight-year-old daughter, my 71-year-old mom, and I want to leave the street where people are looking at me. I don't look like them. It looks like I've done something bad. I did nothing wrong. It was someone's perception. And so having that, you know, that go through your mind and, and at that time, it is a choice of life and death. That's what happens. And so every movement that you make as a person of color puts you at a step of, am I going to make it home? Like, and so you have to think really quickly. And I don't think some of my other colleagues have probably had to go through that or know what that feels like. It is scary. And realizing that 
people are treated differently here based on what they look like. And then at least trying to understand its perceptions, its biases, its, you know, it's the way you grew up, it's what you were told, it's stereotypes. Once we get to that point in the state of Wisconsin where we can have those real candid conversations, I think that's how we move forward. And that's why I'm a big supporter of education. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know the story of, of your profiling experience, could you just kind of share that again? Sure. So on August 7th, 2018, I was out knocking doors on the west side of Madison with my 71-year-old mother at that time and my eight-year-old daughter. I had been on the street for about 20 minutes, probably knocked about six doors. I was a week out from my, um, from my election for this particular seat um, when someone called the police, an anonymous caller. The police uh, came up behind my car. I was at a future constituent's home talking with them. I noticed the officer was behind my car, so I asked him if it was okay to, you know, end that conversation and go over and ask officer what, what was wrong. And when I did that, um, the officer said, well, they think you're a drug dealer. And I said, a drug dealer? What does a drug dealer look like? Me, a drug dealer? Are you serious? And why that was important is because I had sent out about five pieces of lit. You know, like I said, within a week out, our our particular race, it was a four-way race, high profile, was all in the media. And so for them to see me come to the door and think that I'm this person, so I was really shocked. Well, little did I know she had had this conversation with my mom, and she wanted to know why were we on that street. Now, this is 2018. I can go anywhere I want to go, but why was I specifically on that street? And my mom told her, you know, she's out knocking doors, she's a candidate. But my mother wasn't believed. My mother is a former president of NAACP. So she's like, whoa, my eight-year-old daughter is witnessing a conversation between my mom and law enforcement. And then my daughter witnesses me with a conversation with law enforcement. When I had the contact with the officer, she saw my name tag. I said, Sheila Stubbs for state rep. And so that identified who I was, but that wasn't enough for her. She asked me, why was I knocking on doors? I told her why I was knocking on doors as a candidate. She asked me, how, how did I know which doors to knock on? I told her I had a walk list. She needed to see the walk list. I said, okay, here you go. I showed her the walk list. That still wasn't enough. She said, still tell me why you're here. I need another form ID. So I had to give her, I just happened to have my driver's license with me. So I showed her my driver's license. And then she said, oh, I'm sorry. And so it was the, it took me three levels of identification plus my mom. But why was I on the street? It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. On a Saturday? I mean, what violation? So what I did ask her, she said, this caller said, I was a drug dealer. I said, well, what does a drug dealer look like? But can I speak to the caller? And it was at that moment, it was the officer's discretion that I could have spoken with the caller, which I think would have made a big difference. I could have told the caller who I was and those kind of things. The officer chose not to let me speak with the caller. So as of today, there's an anonymous person who called the police on me that I really wanted to meet with them and say, you know, who I am, why I was there. And that was a part of the healing process. That didn't happen. I walked away. I was just, I'll be honest, I was on my floor in my house for a day. I couldn't get up. I cried. I've never been told I don't belong someplace. Leave. I watched all these dogs, all these white people come out of their home, watching my mom, myself, and my daughter, my daughter. be a, It was a traumatic experience. So my husband being a pastor ministered to me. He's like, you got to get up. I went back out to do doors. I had to take a 24-hour respite <laughs> from my election. And then I went back out to do doors back on the west side, not on that street. Um, but I had to hold that inside of me. And no one knew it. And then when it came up, people said, what? I did win my 
campaign by over 50%, but that was a decision. Do I tell people what happened and then do they feel sorry for me? Do they think I'm problematic? But these are things that go through. At the end of the day, this anonymous caller sends a letter to myself, campaign, every news channel, every radio station, saying that I caused all this harm to him. And I'm like, I'm a victim, right? I'm a victim. I would love to meet you because I'd like to know what do you think a drug dealer looks like, right? My car was a, a Lincoln, 2014 Lincoln, no tinted windows, no rims. I mean, I'm trying to figure out buying drugs from the local drugstore. I don't even know the neighborhood, right? I GPS to get to the neighborhood. Well, and I didn't know drug dealers went door to door. That's exactly right. So I'm like, oh my God, this story is so wrong on so many levels. And I think it comes down to, you know, biases. It's race out of places, um, proxy profiling, just understanding what probably was going through that person's mind and trying to say, you know, I'm not who you think I am or what you think it is. And just how that made me feel as a person. So for me, this work is passion. It's a part of my healing. It's a necessary story. And I think it recognizes that here I am as elected official, 15 years at the county, a pastor, very connected to my community, but yet it happened to me as a leader. It can happen to you. So that's kind of the gist of my story. Well, and I have to say, I mean, I've knocked on literally tens of thousands of doors in the last uh, 10, 12 years in my career in the legislature in every corner of the state. Nothing like that has ever happened to me. I mean, so I think it just validates your your, uh, your feeling that, you know, that was colored in, in some way by yeah. racial bias. Yeah. And we, we have incidents like this, right? Yeah. Um, your, your story made national news, um, the shooting of Jacob Blake, the, the death of George Floyd. We have these, these things that gather momentum and catch people's attention. But, you know, they happen again and again, and, and none of this is new. So can you point to some of the factors you think have contributed to Wisconsin getting to the point that it is where it is one of the worst states, if not the worst state in the nation for black people to live? Well, I grew up in the, in the Milwaukee area. And uh, so I spent, you know, 20 years of my uh, life down there growing up. And it is and always has been one of the most racially segregated cities in, in the country. I don't know what the reasons are for that. I don't know what the causes are behind it. I don't know why our achievement gap is so broad here in the state where it isn't as bad in other parts of the country. But those are those are the kind of things that I need to learn about as a, as a legislator. Um, I need to hear those stories and we need to figure out coming together with experts in these fields why this, why this is. I, I can't answer that. Uh, I don't know that there is an answer for it, but uh, something we, that's kind of the purpose of this is to, to start working on it. Right, and I think that there's been lots of stories, but sometimes it's who's listening. And I think what's happened is after years and years and years of compiling so many stories, then the data shows something terribly has happened. And then we're trying to figure out like what happened nationally. Was it the crash of the stock market? Was it, you know, what what happened? And I think people are still trying to figure out what it is, but I think for so long, that if you ask a person, an African-American who goes to court, like they'll look and they might go to court, but none of the jurors look like them. And it's like people that don't look like me don't understand my story, but they're the one who is uh, deciding my future and not having diversity, I think is a part of the problem, but being able to have the infrastructure. And this is what we're saying with the, the task force. I think with the Office of Equity and Inclusion, we've always had affirmative action, but it's just building up to an actionary point, realizing something has happened. 
How do we collect those stories? What do we do with them? But you know what? I can't go back and change 20 years. But what I can do right now with this moment is make sure the next 20 years are not repeated like those past 20 years. But it's getting a colleague like Representative Steinick who said, I, you know, this wouldn't have happened to me or I don't know this story. Education. And that's where I think a part of what's going to happen with this task force, people around the table are going to be educated. They're going to realize, oh, my God, this happened. And then I think it's going to make it an actionary step to be like, this can't happen again. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, we're going to grow as a team. And as you grow as a team, it's not going to be about me or you. It's going to be about us collectively in one state. Yeah. And we've, we've got to, and, and the, I think the most important thing coming out of this is that as we make incremental changes, we have people that are around the table that are celebrating the successes yes. and not focusing on the failures or where we fell short in their, in their point of view. Um, because no change happens overnight. Things are done incrementally. Uh, I know politics these days seems to be all or nothing, that if I don't get 100% of what I want, I'm, I'm not gonna get anything. Uh, we ha really have to start getting away from that mindset, and I, I'm hoping that the people that we choose to be part of this task force will have that same mm -hmm. mindset. Mm -hmm. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Just said you don't want to dwell on the past a lot, but I want to ask a little bit about the past. <laughs> so going back to the past, anyway, <laughs> just saying. I had this question earlier. Um, well, no. One, one of the first uh, laws that was was passed shortly after Republicans gained the majority was repealing a law that Democrats had just passed that would have tracked um, racial data on on traffic stops. And I'm wondering if either of you think. That was a bad idea if it would be helpful to be approaching this task force now with that data that could have been collected over the last decade? Well, I, I look at this and I, I think the, the biggest thing uh, that we can do in a positive way uh, is shine a light on the facts surrounding law enforcement in the state. You know, it, one, of the, one of the things I think is in, important is in this whole effort is to understand, uh, like when it comes to policing, what is use of force? What does that mean? Is that different from agency to agency? Uh, how is that data reported? Because you know, use of force to me when I when I first hear it and think in relation to law enforcement, I'm thinking violent struggle, and that's not always the case. That can be as simple as putting your hands on a on a suspect to detain them. So those are the those are the kind of things I, I do think data points uh, are important. Uh, and quite frankly, I can't recall all the specifics about that law and how it works. So. Uh, I'd have to go back and take a look at it. But I, I do think transparency, sunlight, I think that will not only help people have better um, perceptions of their law enforcement, but I think it will help law enforcement at the end of the day because law enforcement wants to get better. So I wasn't here at that time, right? <laughs> but I can certainly chime in on what I think. I think any time we're able to abstract from data, especially when we're dealing with race, I think it's important because at that time you can work on initiatives. You can begin to change the narrative because you don't want all of these scenarios to lead up to one big incident. And then people say, see, it happened starting in 2001. If you would have done something then, then we wouldn't be, you don't want that cause and effect. You know, I think it's important for the community 
to understand the story. I think it helps law enforcement, especially maybe it's a particular officer. Maybe we need to look at risk and assessments. Maybe we need to look at their perception. Maybe they're just literally uncomfortable. Maybe because they grew up and something terribly happened. Then we have to look at psychological evaluations. There's so much that can happen from that perspective that I think at the end of the day, I'll say it again, the officer wants to go home safely and the person who gets that want to go home. How do we get a win in both? And I think the only way we do that is to begin to do what Representative Steinke say is understand what each term means and how do we get there with the consensus. One more past question. <laughs> and I, I know you may need to speak to this from the local level because you have been involved in local government, at least uh, Representative Stubbs. But can you point to anything um, passed legislatively over the last decade or so that you think made racial disparities better, improved things, or was at least intended to do that? <laughs> Your leadership. Because um, I, I have a lot at local level, so I'm going to chime it up good there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, do, I do think there's... I was waiting Thanks, for her Jesse. to go first, let's be clear. That'd take me 10 minutes, and he'll be like, I should have went first. No, I, I think there there are quite a few things, and we, we could certainly provide uh, a list of things that we've done, but I think a lot of it has to do with uh, economic opportunities, uh, training, you know, workforce development, things of that nature that we've really tried to focus on over the course of the last eight years. That's really been the legislature's main focus has been in, in uh, workforce development and getting jobs for as many people as there are uh, people that want jobs. Uh, by and large, we were pretty successful over the course of eight years. Obviously, uh, you know, we had a little virus issue still going on that has had an impact on that. But, you know, those are things that I would point to uh, that I, I think have done some good in, in communities of color throughout the state. So great. I'm going to actually speak. I haven't been here very long, like a year and a half. And uh, so I like to speak from a local level. Um, and then I can chime in on what I've done at the state level. So, so you're also of, on the County Board of Supervisors. Yes, I'm also still currently at the Dane County Board of Supervisors. So there's a couple of initiatives that I've been a leader on. And I think because they've been very successful at the local level, I've tried to write a bill to get it done here. Haven't been successful yet, but still hopeful. So one is creating a community restorative court, which focuses on 17 to 25 year olds, low level, and we don't call them offenders, we call them participants, because I think if you're going to say reform, we do need to change names and titles because we degrade people before we give them a chance to be a part of the conversation. Um, and so we launched that five years ago. What's been really unique is to find our law enforcement partners believing and giving people another chance and looking at it from a restorative justice perspective, which is you have to accept that you've done harm, but in the acceptance of doing the harm, then we as a community restorative court will address the issues that led you to doing this particular crime. So if it's AODA, if it's mental health services, if it's finding a job, Whatever that is, we want to make sure we give you those services to address it. And then the beauty of this also is victims must agree that you can do this program because the victim voices are so important and we can't leave them out. Um, but the other part, the, the nugget, because I know Representative Seinke is like, what's the nugget? Here's the nugget. Uh, they eliminate the CCAP entry. And I think that is what's so imperative because CCAP have so much information mm -hmm. on there that you are judged before you get a chance. And these are sometimes college students, right? What they did at age 18 or 19, 
they don't realize impacts them at age 50, where now you're not going to be that banker. You're, you're not going to be that great doctor that you thought you're going to be because you're hanging out, you know, drinking and doing these other things. And then you may, you committed a crime. So it gives them another chance. And I believe in giving people another chance. I'm really proud of that program. So that's one. Creating the Office of Equity and Inclusion is the second one. I introduced the bill here. Governor Evers did an executive order because it is truly the framework. So we create this Office of Equity and Inclusion at the state level. There's five positions. Yeah, we got to fund it. That's to make the appropriation. That's probably why I didn't get bipartisan leadership on that because the concept makes sense, but we're talking money now. Also, just about a month ago, uh, there's $100,000 that was invested in Urban Lake of Greater Madison to create like the Sherman Phoenix Hub mm-hmm. where we can help minority-owned, women-owned, disabled-owned entrepreneurs get their businesses up and going and invest in, in there. Um, that's another one. Then I tell you the fourth one that I'm really excited about I did was expungement clinics. I think that's the next best step because there are a lot of people who have been convicted, but their judgment of convictions things were wrong and they can't get certain jobs. And so how to do the corrective piece um, so we can at least begin to address those issues. So those are four big highlights. I could say at the county level that I've started on, there's so many more, mm-hmm. but I'm going <laughs> to highlight four for just for us. So you wanted me to go first, right? <laughs> As you mentioned earlier, uh, partisan gridlock has been a little bit of an issue here in Wisconsin in the last few years. To the extent that, you know, Republicans and Democrats can't even agree on how to address the coronavirus pandemic. So I can see you two. I know you two. You want to work together. You have a working relationship and you have a shared goal in mind. But how are you going to translate that into getting the legislature on board to and, and the governor on board and, and getting the buy in to, to break through that gridlock? To me, it's, it's as simple as... Um showing how it can be done. It's got to be a public process. Obviously, the task force is going to be very public, Mm -hmm. bringing people together, um, showing that if you you start at the beginning, you work through all these issues, you have everybody's voice at the table, and you come to consensus. I don't know how you can then get to the legislature and not get things passed if everybody, Republicans and Democrats, law enforcement, others involved in healthcare, education, all end up in the same spot. Um, you know, the rationale for not passing bills, I, I think, goes away. I think the rationale for not signing bills as the governor goes away. I mean, one of the things that, again, we've been kind of focused on is the governor throwing bills out there, calling special sessions, saying pass it. You know, we, we do the same thing in the legislature. We, we put bills together, we send them on to the governor, and we ask him to pass it or sign it. Um, I think if we create a more inclusive process on things like this from the very beginning where we're actually talking about these things before they become soup, before they become, you know, hard proposals, I think we'll we'll be in better shape going forward. And I think, um, you know, I've been a critic, you know, on the 31st, I was down, Mm -hmm. I was downstairs at a press conference saying, go to work. Not only did I say that, I said, I will work with you. Whatever it takes me to do to get to the table to work with you, I would do it. That's the kind of person that I am. And I think what people realize is I don't have a hidden agenda. Steinecke doesn't have a hidden agenda. We are literally trying to move forward. I you know, I think one way to be able to do that, for example, with the Wisconsin Legislative Black Caucus, this is an opportunity. And so when you see an opportunity, you take it. Maybe some of my other colleagues don't truly understand that yet, but I understand as an African-American woman, as an African-American legislator, that this is an opportunity for me 
to talk and move forward meaningful legislation from a community that I represent and why would I not do it? I still don't have a reason why I would not do it. And if my yes outweighs my no, then I need to do it. And so this is why I'm doing it. And I think that we're going to set um, an example, a model for the rest of our colleagues to see it can be done. And I think the way that Representative Steinick and I are thinking about how do we address more than one area at the same time. And seeing that I champion a lot of work, I have 15 years of experience as an elected, only a year and a half in this building, but I have experience and I get things done. And he knows that with me, that I don't have time to waste. Every moment is meaningful in this building because you will run out of time. I learned as a freshman. I had one bill that was in, and then they were like, out of time, session's <laughs> over. <laughs> what? Um, but just being able to get a bill to a calendar uh-huh. in this building, you don't get that time. And so that is the other part of the importance of this task force and getting the work done early because time is it's either our friend or not our friend. I think overall, people know that know me as an individual that I'm a hard worker. And I think that those that don't know me, let me prove myself. I've proven myself in so many capacities, but I'm also at this table as a victim. And that is the voice that oftentimes is left out of the process. And I'm able to work with leadership. I don't know how much better to say that, but leadership is who's driving the calendars. I'm given a great opportunity and I'm going to capture every moment of it. So this may not be something that you can measure a year from now, even five years from now, but what do you think you need to see from your work on this to consider it a successful effort? Yeah, I, I often, you know, we, we often talk about uh, in our caucus, what does success look like, right? How do, you, how do you define it? In an area as broad as this, with as many challenges as that we're going to confront, I, th- I think the biggest thing is progress, um, incremental gains, to make sure that we're moving in the right direction, uh, to get that bipartisan consensus uh, around solutions, I think that's where we measure it. If this thing, if this thing all falls apart and we get nothing passed, that's going to be a failure, and that's mm-hmm. what both Representative Stubbs and I have said. We we just can't accept. Uh, I don't raise my hand and get involved in efforts if I don't think that there's a reasonable chance for success. I've done it before on homelessness issues and others. Now I share her frustration in not getting bills passed because even as someone in leadership, I've not gotten some things passed that I wanted to get passed. So it, it can be frustrating, but even, even as somebody in leadership, I'm still one of 132. Um, now we're two of 132 and, and hopefully that will increase our chances of success, success being uh, a Democrat and a Republican working on these things together because, you know, as, as much as, we, we'd like, or at least I'd like it not to be true, we're in, we're in divided government, right? Uh, and we've, we've got to find ways to work together. So we're going to need Democrats to be on board. They're going to need Republicans to be on board. And that's just the way it is. And it, it's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It only is a bad thing if we make it a bad thing. And I think what, and I appreciate what you said, Representative Steinecke. I think the other part is being transparent. Oftentimes in, in government, it's not transparent, but he's been very clear I've been very honest because we want people to know it just wasn't a press statement. It wasn't just a press conference. We really are asking everybody to help. And I think that type of engagement is matter. It's going to matter because it's not being a post-op engagement. I think number two, I really believe passing some bills is going to mean some progress. I feel that we're stuck. And I don't get anything in the minority. 
but I get a chance. I can write all the press statements and all the press releases, and but I want to get things passed. But I also need that I have another partner we can talk to, which is the governor. Whoever it takes for me to convey the importance of doing this work, I'm willing to do that. There is only seven of us that are African-American in this building. And so if we're saying we're okay with it, then we're asking our colleagues to support us. And so support me. Don't, you know, don't put me down. If there's something I can do better, just tell me I'm approachable. And I think that's what people are going to see within this process. We are approachable and we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. But again, we, we have to measure by success by what gets done. So we have to capture those small wins. And I say that constantly. We don't always say we've been successful at something small. We feel like it has to be the bigger picture. But just this relationship here is a small win, right? And, and you capture that and then you keep building on it. So I think that at the end of the day, people are watching. They're waiting and they're hopeful until we give them something differently. And that's why we really need to be successful. And that's why I don't want to fail. Because it's not about me failing. It's failing my community. It's failing so many voices across the state. And I really want to thank all of our professional teams for stepping up and being a part of this dialogue. Because I've never seen that happen before. And the players that have been engaged. I know Representative Steinecke has been in conversation. That's important to you. We've never been at this point before in this state. And I think that's the other reason why we cannot fail. And since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming home. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. You can subscribe and leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer to do your listening. You should also check out our other Cap Times podcasts like the Madsplainers and The Corner Table. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Opie, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.